Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. Lots of things happening in the past week or so, and I'm going to get to them one at a time. First, the sentencing of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. He got 22 and a half years, making him eligible for parole in 2035 or 36. That would be two-thirds of his sentence. As you might expect, the sentence was too short for some, too long for others. The prosecution sought 30 years. The defense wanted probation and credit for time served. Given that reality, and the reality of relatively light sentences for cops who kill unjustly, this was as close to justice as I certainly was prone to expect. The family of George Floyd has publicly proclaimed the sentence satisfactory, which is good enough for me. Keep in mind, the murder of George Floyd resonated with people not just in the United States, but around the world. People took to the streets to demand justice and ensured that even though he lost his life needlessly, people would not forget him. And as for Chauvin, don't think for a moment there's a dutiful wife waiting for him at the end of his time. His wife filed for divorce in the days following George Floyd's murder. The real question that needs to be asked is this. Will the George Floyd murder make police across America think twice about acting in a brutal fashion toward people of color? Possible, but not likely. And I say that with a good deal of pain. And I say that because I've covered these things, as those of you who listen to this podcast regularly know, for a very, very long time. There are still people in law enforcement who see black people in particular as likely criminals. This is not all police. But cop culture in too many American cities and towns, if not condoning brutality, at the very least, look the other way. That has to end. Building or rebuilding trust between police and a community that is skeptical at best of police is a must. Derek Chauvin's conviction and sentence won't do that alone. Maybe we should look to heroic cops like D.C. Metro Police Officer Michael Fanon as examples of what good cops do. This is a man who put his life on the line during the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and suffered life-threatening injuries as a result. New York City may be well on its way to electing a good cop, Eric Adams, as mayor. Now, you may ask, why would you call him a good cop? I say good cop because I've known Eric for more than 30 years, back to a time when he was an officer who was one of the precious few who spoke out against police brutality. He was co-founder of 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care, and he was critical of police brutality during a time that he suffered consequences for his outspoken statements. Speaking of which, if Eric Adams does become New York City's second black mayor, it will be because he made a compelling case for an emphasis on public safety during the course of his campaign. Public safety. Now, I remember, and again, you know, I've been around for a minute. I can remember doing stories on police brutality, doing stories on stop and frisk, which was a huge hot button issue in New York City about 20 odd years ago. And I remember 
One person in particular, his name I believe was Vernon, older man, I think he said he was like 78 years old at the time he called. And he said, you know, said, as a black man, I'm in favor of stopping first. And I said, wow, that, that's, that was kind of different because most of my audience at that time were vehemently against stopping first. And he said, listen, I live in Brownsville. For those of you who don't know, Brownsville is one of the toughest, even now, one of the toughest neighborhoods in the city of New York. And he said, I'm afraid sometimes to come out of my house. I had been mugged three different times in the past year and a half, two years. So it makes me very, very nervous. And I was mugged at gunpoint those three times, all three of them. And he said, if you can take the guns out of the hands of these punks on the street, I am all for stop and frisk. And now, 20-some-odd years later, what he said still resonates with me. Because this is a guy who lived in fear because of people on the street who were carrying illegal, I emphasize, illegal firearms. And something had to be done. Something still has to be done. The rising crime rate in New York City which largely has taken place during the pandemic and in its immediate aftermath, has to be addressed. And Eric Adams made a compelling case that he was able and is able to deal with public safety in the city of New York. Now, he has not won the mayoralty yet with ranked choice voting, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. He has to reach a certain threshold, which he has not yet met. But certainly, if he does that, and if he wins against the Republican nominee, Curtis Lee, with the founder of the Guardian Angels, Eric Adams will become New York City's second black mayor. But although the city of New York is not necessarily a bellwether for the country, it is worth noting that the city's turnout among Democratic voters was at its highest level since 1989, the year David Dinkins became the city's first black mayor. Ranked choice voting, a first in the city this time, gave voters an interesting set of options. This was against the backdrop of Adams saying it was a form of voter suppression, something I vehemently disagree with. No matter, down-ballot races were equally as interesting and equally tight in many cases. We probably will not know the ultimate outcome for these races until the middle of July. To me, that is the only downside of ranked choice voting. Otherwise, it's a novel idea whose time has come. But there's another aspect of this election that people should not ignore. Eric Adams captured the lion's share of the black vote. He did so running on a moderate law and order platform. In many instances, politicians and pundits took for granted that a progressive candidate would tap into, for example, black resentment of police brutality. Yet there's a disconnect between some of the black community and progressives that is undeniable. Bernie Sanders experienced this in 2016, though he did marginally better four years later. There's no doubt that progressives do very well among younger black voters, but too often 
the parents of those younger voters were not necessarily on board. We've seen this before. Remember, it was Joe Biden, who was a fourth place also ran going into the South Carolina Democratic primary just last year. Biden was considered a moderate the same way Eric Adams is. Biden won that primary in South Carolina largely on the strength of the black vote. This moderate strain in the black community was highlighted in a recent New York Times article. It's a challenge for progressive that I for progressives that is that I talked about as far back as two decades ago, when I saw then that progressive Democrats, and I emphasize progressive Democrats, tended to take the black vote for granted. Now, this was not all progressive Democrats. Don't get me wrong. There's some progressive Democrats that understood very clearly what the priorities of black people were. And what I think some people miss about this is that beyond issues of race and many of the offshoots of issues of race, black people want the same thing everybody else wants. They want to be able to educate their kids. They want to be able to have health care that will cover them and their kids if they get sick. They want to make a decent living wage. So every now and then, they're not looking to, you know, get rich. You know, none of them want to be Jeff Bezos, at least I don't think so. But what they do want is the ability sometimes to take their kids out, uh, give them something to eat, those kinds of things. And it's amazing to me um, because if you look closely at working and I want to say working poor, working class black people, you find that they want the same things that working class white people do. It's just that they get divided, whites and blacks, by pundits and politicians and others who think that they can play one off against the other. If you want to see the true nature, the true nature of black and brown communities Go to any graduation in an inner city neighborhood. I don't care if it's junior high school, middle school, high school, college, and look at the faces of the parents of those graduates. And you see pride. And you see a sense of accomplishment that they could get their children, and forgive me for calling them kids earlier, get their children this far along in their lives. And that's what they're looking for. And too many times, progressives come at them with abstract theory about what they should want, what they should be looking for. And certainly, I understand that progressives, particularly in the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mode, have done very, very well and I understand that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is trying to consolidate those gains that have been made over the last four years or so. And certainly the ascension of AOC and others not as well known among progressive Democrats is something to be proud of. Yet to take the next steps, progressives need to listen to working class black people in New York and all around the country. You may be surprised at what you hear. Up next, 
Matt Gates and the General, and Rudy Giuliani loses his law license in New York, at least for now. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Ryan. Welcome back to The Intersection. I don't know about you, but I think Matt Gase, the congressman from Florida, is a tool and an idiot and whatever other negative terms you want to use. When we last heard from him, he was defending himself against allegations he passed around pictures of naked women on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives and allegedly had sex with a 17-year-old girl. Hardly the kind of credentials that would qualify him to take on the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, or Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Yet here he was, turning a House Armed Services Committee hearing on next year's military budget into a slugfest on critical race theory. That's right, critical race theory. I, for one, I'm quite sure the vast majority of people who criticize critical race theory have little or no idea what it actually is, or that it's taught in colleges and universities, not elementary school. But hey, I quibble. Gates decides to talk trash about the U.S. military for being too woke on issues of race. And keep in mind, this is a guy who never, ever served in the military. Guess he's thought he'd score some style points with his idol, Donald Trump. Now, I know many of you may have heard General Mark Milley's response. It's been all over social media. Yet I figured I'd play it here, courtesy of C-SPAN. First of all, on the issue of critical race theory, etc., I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university, uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, antebellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a civil war and emancipation proclamation to change it. And we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know. And I respect your service, and you and I are both Green Berets. But I want to know. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military. And I thank you for the opportunity to make a comment on that. 
Afterward, Gates tweeted, with generals like this, it's no wonder we fought considerably more wars than we've won. We? We? Who exactly is we, Matt Gates? It is certainly not you. Anyway, his flippant nonsense earned an avalanche of criticism on all forms of social media, which leads me to wonder why he didn't keep his social media fingers to himself and not allow himself to look like a petulant child while General Milley was speaking. Does he think there's no such thing as bad publicity? Or is he just that stupid? Remember this the next time Gates and the GOP cabal claim to be friends of the U.S. Armed Forces. On another right-wing front, Rudy Giuliani, former federal prosecutor, former mayor of New York City, and legal advisor to a former president, has had his law license suspended in the state of New York. The New York State Appellate Court ruled that Giuliani made, quoting here, demonstrably false and misleading statements, end quote. This much we do know. Rudy Giuliani lied like a rug in courtrooms all over America. He told some judges he had evidence to prove that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. He actually presented no such thing. The court also took a dim view of Rudy's exhortation that he sought a trial by combat during that January 6th insurrection. Trial by combat. Hundreds stormed the Capitol a short time later. Keep in mind the suspension is temporary, pending the outcome of disciplinary proceedings that are closed to the public. A worst case scenario for him would be disbarment, though some legal experts quoted in the media do not think that will happen. And of course, that's not all. The feds are still probing his dealings with the government of Ukraine, which he allegedly importuned to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. He did that at the behest of Trump, by the way. Wonder if he ever paid Rudy that money he supposedly owed him. I think it was something on the order of 20 grand a day. Right now, however, it looks like Rudy Giuliani's primary sources of income are his security consulting firm, his New York City radio program, and acting as a pitchman for cigars. Not to worry, Rudy Giuliani will be just fine. And finally in this episode, nearly 900 employees of the U.S. Secret Service have contracted COVID-19. Wonder where they got it from. Stay with us. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Almost 900 employees of the U.S. Secret Service, 11% of their total workforce, tested positive for coronavirus between March 1st, 2020 and March 9th of this year. We know this because the information was made public because of a Freedom of Information Act request made by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a good government group. More than half of those who tested positive 
work in the Special Agent Division. Those workers tasked with protecting the president, vice president, their families, and other government officials. You may remember that the Trump administration engaged in a number of risky behaviors that potentially exposed Secret Service workers to the possibility of becoming infected. We may never know because the names and assignments of the infected workers remains private. We may never know if Trump infected the workers or the reverse, because remember, the former president did contract the virus. And by the way, it was apparently much worse than we were given to believe at the time. In fairness, it should also be noted that part of the period that is noted in this report happened on the watch of Joe Biden after he took office from January 20th to March 9th. So Biden does bear some small responsibility. But the bulk of this came during Trump. Either way, it's mind-boggling, mind-boggling to think that a large percentage of a crucial workforce came down with COVID. Dollars to donuts, if you ask Trump if he has any responsibility in this, he will answer, no, none at all. Of course not. Donald Trump isn't responsible for anything bad that happened to anyone on his watch. In fact, we'll never know how many people caught the virus attending one or more of his rallies during the presidential campaign last year. And by the way, he's doing more rallies this year. We've heard a few stories about COVID skeptics and anti-vaxxers who later got infected and in some cases tragically died to listening after listening to Donald Trump and his minions tout bleach and other useless so-called cures, tried them, and ended up paying the price. Something to think about, folks. Almost 900 workers who work for an agency whose job it is to protect the highest elected officials in the land. 900, 11% of the total workforce. That, to me, it's just me, is mind-boggling. Now, there are other stories that we'll get to in subsequent episodes, including the graves of 750 indigenous children found in Saskatchewan. That's right, found in Saskatchewan on the grounds of a Catholic school and the scandal that is being uncovered because that school forcibly brought indigenous children to it from 1899 to 1998. Mind-boggling, but we'll get to that in a future episode. Republicans killed for now the For the People Act. That battle is not yet over. And the sad case of Britney Spears. Now, I'm not a big Britney Spears fan, never have been. But what appears to be happening, and I'm saying this because it's now public record, she only wants to live like any other adult. Any other adult. We'll get to those stories in a future episode. As they say, soon come. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. 
Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.